Okay, so 1 Kings chapter 9, 15 to 18. Let's see what God tells us about these events. So just a reminder, Elijah has been on the, the mountain. He's had his theophany. He's just in, engaged with God in the cave. And God is now telling him the answer to his question, you know, what's going on? Um, where are you, God? And God says this, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So it's looking back from where we've come. Now if we turn to 2 Kings, chapter 8, 7 to 15, our passage for today. We look forward and now we're back with Elisha from God's words to Elijah. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. This is the word of the Lord. It's estimated that anywhere between 80 and 150 million people were killed in some kind of conflict in the 20th century, the century that we just finished, the century that uh, many of us were born in. Some call it the bloodiest century in humanity's history. And the majority of these uh, were in the two world wars that were fought in the 1920s and the 1940s. And in particular, the 
hell-bent aim of destruction of the Jews and of anyone that got in his way has made Adolf Hitler the example that most people go to first when they think about an evil ruler. It's not uncommon, nor is it unreasonable, for people to to ask the question, if God truly is all-powerful, if He truly is all-knowing, and if He truly is all-good, then how could He let someone like Hitler run rampant for so long and destroy so many lives? Many have concluded that the mere existence of such evil proves that the God that Christians claim to be real evidently just cannot exist. And for Christians, this is no doubt something that we also wrestle with at different times in our faith. Now, it is this very consideration that faces us this morning in our passage. For the original readers and for us today, we wonder, does God have authority over evil? Does He have authority over evil? And while that question should be applied, as it is in our text, to the evil regimes and the evil rulers of this world, it shouldn't take us long to see that the question applies to us just as as much as it does to them. It applies to the evil in our own hearts and our own lives. After all, Hitler, just like all such rulers, they are, they were, people, just like us. And oftentimes, they had upbringings that were not unlike our own. And so this morning, I have three points for you as we work our way through the text with Bibles, hearts and minds open, ready to hear the Word of God. And they are, one, we grasp for the throne, two, God sits on the throne, and three, the cross proves God's throne. We'll come to those as we uh, come to them. So, first point, let's begin there. We grasp for the throne. Let's read together from verse 7. Now, Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Damascus was the main city of the Aramean region, uh, as, uh, or Syria, as the ESV translates it. And Israel, as we've seen a few times now, doesn't have a great relationship with this region, this nation, or its king. They have warred against each other several times in the past, which, of course, as we saw a few weeks ago, climaxed in Ben-Hadad besieging Samaria, the capital of Israel, before God then delivered uh, Israel from them. And so there could be any number of reasons why Elisha is here in Damascus, but I think he's probably here on God's business. As Josh read earlier, and as we saw several weeks ago, First uh, Kings 19.15 uh, is where God told Elijah to anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And so for whatever reason, Elijah didn't do that. And that's why we see what we see in our passage this morning. And so it seems like Elisha has come to Damascus to complete this unfinished business that God wanted Elijah to do. Ben-Hadad, who was the king, now lays sick. 
And when he finds out that the man of God has come, he, he wants Hazael, his servant, to take a present with him to Elisha and to ask him, am I going to recover from this sickness? Now, even though it might seem strange for a king to seek the word of a foreign god, you might think to yourself, well, why is, why is Ben-Hadad asking uh, for this uh, prophet of Israel, of a different nation? Well, the, the people in this time were a polytheistic people. That is, they believed in many gods. And so, hey, if one of them was going to do something to help you, even if it wasn't your own god, no reason why you couldn't go and pay that one and see if they could give you some better news themselves. And as a matter of fact, we've actually already seen this in this book. It's actually rather ironic because in 2 Kings 1, when Ahaziah, an Israelite king, you might remember, he, he fell through the lattice of his window and then he lay on his bed sick, unable to move. Instead of seeking word from the God that he was supposed to be worshipping, Yahweh, the Lord, he sent for Baalzebub, the God of Ekron, a Philistine God. And so now instead, here we have a, a, a kind of inverse of that. We have the, the Syrian king seeking the word of the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what, is this, what does this indicate to us? Well, it could very well be that the king, Ben-Hadad, has come to believe that Yahweh is the only true God. It's possible, especially given that the Lord defeated his army in the siege of Samaria, and Elisha proved time and time again that, he could, that the Lord was powerful and told Elisha the very things that Ben-Hadad was speaking in his bedroom. You might remember that from a few weeks ago. So it's possible that perhaps Ben-Hadad has gone, oh, maybe this is the real God, and, that's, and, and I need to go and find out from him. But you know, the fact that he only seeks counsel after he hears word that Elisha is in town, unlike Naaman, for example, who goes straight to Elisha as soon as he hears about him, the fact that he sends him 40 camel loads worth of gift and stuff uh, to, to try and sort of, you know, curry his favor, and the nature of the fact that his question is, you know, am I going to recover? That, that all seems to me to indicate that Ben-Hadad here is probably just being opportunistic. He's, he's, you know, perhaps he's already tried his usual gods and they haven't helped him, they haven't given him any good news, so he's thinking, well, why don't I have a crack at this one? This prophet from Israel's here, might as well. Shall I recover from this illness? Ben-Hadad is trying to use God for his own desires. He's trying to enlist God's power and prophecy to keep him where he wants to be. And that's the way of all humanity, including us, isn't it? The first human beings were placed in the Garden of Eden and were tasked to be God's representative rulers on the earth. They were made in His image and they were supposed to be rulers under God's sovereign rule, kings and queens who reflected His image and who submitted to His kingship. But ever since Adam and Eve chose instead that they didn't want to be second to the throne, but that they wanted to be their own rulers, they wanted to have God's throne, they wanted to be kings and queens over their own worlds, that same desire has passed down to every single person who has ever lived, including you and me. 
Now, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to live longer or to seek God's healing from our sickness or even necessarily to seek longevity in a, in a position of authority. After all, with just, with just a little bit of reflection, I'm sure all of us would much rather that we have a good leader or a good prime minister or, or leader of the free world remain in place for a long period of time than we would have, it, have an evil person come and take that place. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 even encourages us, encourages us to pray for this. Paul instructs Timothy, pray For our leaders, pray that they would rule well so that we may live peaceful and godly lives. There's nothing inherently wrong with praying for good leadership, sustained good leadership. But the problem begins when we aren't willing and ready to submit all our authority and all our wants and all of our desires to the ultimate authority, to the King of Kings. And you see, evil desires, they spring from, from grasping, grasping at God's throne and wanting to sit on that ourselves. But God's design is for human beings who are made in His image to reflect and to submit to His kingship, to submit to His throne. Things go wrong when we try to sit on God's throne. Where is that happening in your life today? Where are you grasping for the throne? Sometimes it's hard for us to see this because it's such a natural impulse. Our world today views God as as someone that we can bend to work for us and what we want rather than someone to bend down in worship and submission to. The issue of sickness is a relevant one. In your immediate response, when you're faced with sickness, whether it's something minor or small or or something severe and serious, when you're faced with that, do you assume that surely God must want good health for you? Surely that is His desire, and so you pray with that kind of expectation. Do you ride in your, your 40 camel loads worth of uh, helping other people and your good church attendance record and your unbroken streak of quiet times and Bible reading and go into God's presence and seek a favorable result and say, Surely God, in light of all of this great stuff I've done, you owe it to me. Or is there a deeper trust in God? One that that still prays for healing and one that seeks good health. One that knows that God is able, trusts in His power and goodness, but does so knowing that He is the sovereign King to whom you will bow before. Brothers and sisters, are you able to open your hands and joyfully leave the outcome of your sickness to Him? Will you bend to him rather than try and make him bend to you? Well, Ben-Hadad isn't the only person we meet in this passage who is grasping for the throne. In these verses, we meet Hazael, his servant, who will later become king, despite 
as Brayden mentioned earlier, being the son of a nobody. And we see in verse 9 of chapter 8 that Hazael does as he's told by Ben-Hadad. He brings the, all the camel loads worth of stuff to Elisha and he asks him whether the king is going to recover. Let's read Elisha's response in verse 10. And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. You shall certainly recover, but he shall certainly die. Uh, There's a bit of a grammatical debate here because uh, some manuscripts of this passage actually say, you shall not recover, for you shall certainly die. If you've got a Bible with notes, you might, it might note that difference in translation. For what it's worth, I think the ESV is the right reading here. And what Elisha is referring to in saying this is the fact that the king, Ben-Hadad, would recover, and perhaps maybe even he did recover, before Hazael murdered him. And so, uh, after saying this, Elisha, he then bores holes into Hazael's head by staring him down. I don't know if you know somebody who does that well. Uh, I don't particularly, but I'm sure you've all at least experienced somebody who does that. (laughs) Let's ever read of verse 11. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. You know, interestingly, fun fact, Hazael's name uh, in Hebrew actually means whom God sees. Whom God sees. I think there might be something poetic in that, in what Elisha is doing here. It seems to me like in this interaction, Elisha is giving Hazael an opportunity to own his sin. I think it's very likely that Hazael here was already plotting to scheme against Ben-Hadad to take his life, to take the throne. And Elisha here is making it extremely clear that that is not something that God has not seen. Elisha is making it clear to Hazael, God sees everything. And he sees the plots and the plans of your heart. Have you ever been in a staring contest with God about your own sin? Have you ever dared Him to blink first? If you're wondering what it feels like, it's that moment when, or just before, you click on that link that you know that you're not supposed to. Or when you plan to say those those fiery words that you're going to say in response, in your head, to what somebody has just said to you. Or when you think up that excuse for not doing what you know is right. God sees everything. And I'm sure you know that. And yet it's amazing, isn't it? How in our foolishness, how in our sinfulness in the moment, we think that we can hide it from Him. 
Friends, don't let God's righteous, penetrating gaze stop you from owning your own sin. Don't let it stop you from confessing it to God and receiving His forgiveness in Christ. When He convicts you of your sin, when He uses your conscience that He's given you to do it, to expose it, don't try to bury and hide it. Don't keep it in the dark. Bring it out into the light and take it to Him, knowing that He is faithful, that He is just to forgive. Well, Elisha weeps. <laughs> Let's read why in verse 12. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. Whether God has shown Elisha a flash forward of this, or whether he simply just told him these facts, we don't know. But we do know that the impact of the truth of what Elisha has seen brings him to tears. It grieves him to know the evil that Hazael is going to commit on the people of Israel. And though the rest of the Old Testament doesn't go into this detail about Hazael again, we do know, again, as Breda mentioned earlier, that Hazael does become an enemy of Israel and he goes to war with them repeatedly and he beats them several times. And the kind of language that is used here in our passage is, is what we hear in other parts of the Bible describing war and conflict and what that actually looks like. In 2 Kings fifteen sixteen is another example. And so it's not hard for us to imagine that what Elisha is describing here is exactly what Hazael goes on to do in the wars that we read about in chapters 10 and 13. This son of a nobody, well, he, he was grasping for more. He was grasping for the throne. He wanted more power. He wanted more for himself. He was prepared to. He was planning to do great evil in order to get there. Even the extra-biblical sources indicate to us that he was a schemer, that he was a usurper. And while the example of Ben-Hadad's grasping for the throne in this passage is, is perhaps more relatable to us, the extent of Hazael's grasping probably isn't so much. I mean, it would surely be a very small percentage of people who would look at this list of evil deeds and think to themselves, yeah, that, those are my life goals, that's what I want to do. As I mentioned, that doesn't mean that we can't relate to this idea of grasping for the throne. But I think it does raise another question for us, which we mentioned at the start. How, how on earth could God stand idly by and just let this happen? How is it that Elisha could describe such atrocities and God just waves it on by. Think about this for a second. For many of us, if God had shown us this image of the great evil that Hazel was going to do, just think about this for a moment. If you knew that was going to happen, 
then we would probably be able to come up pretty quickly with a reason that we find to be justifiable to kill Hazael then and there so that we could prevent him from doing such heinous things. Right? I'd wager that it wouldn't take us many steps to think that stopping evil in its tracks, a great evil, by taking one life is worth it. Whether you agree with him or not, this is the kind of thinking that led Dietrich Bonhoeffer to be able to support the assassination plot against Adolf Hitler in World War II. He was a devout Christian, he was a theologian, and Bonhoeffer eventually came to the conclusion that it was the right thing to do, to seek to take out Hitler. There was more to it than that in his reasoning and his thinking, but that's the basic idea. So if God really is all good then, if He really is omnibenevolent, why would He not tell Elisha to do the same right here? Elisha knew this was going to happen. Why would Elisha not just take him out then and there? If God is all-knowing, and He proves to be in this moment by predicting that, that that's what Hazael is going to do, and even playing a part in that, by saying that it will happen in the future and getting Elisha to anoint him. And if God really is all-powerful and all-good, if He really is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, why wouldn't He just stop Hazael? Why would He not do what seems right to us? Well, that brings us to the second point. God sits on the throne. God sits on the throne. More often than not, at the root of our problem with the problem of evil is a belief that we, if we were God, we would do things differently. More often than not, at the root of our problem with the problem of evil is a belief that if we were God, we would do things differently. And by that I mean we think we would do things rightly. Jim Carrey gives us a glimpse of that in Bruce Almighty. If you've seen the film, smite me, almighty smiter! You're the one who should be fired! The only one around here not doing his job is you! You may have felt the same way at certain points. Well, let's continue. Hazel, I think... He pretends here to be caught off guard by Elisha's prophecy. Let's read verse 13. And Hazel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Now, this isn't the first time we've been given this piece of information, as we saw earlier in 1 Kings. So obviously, it's not like God didn't know. And not only that, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're we're in an even trickier situation when we see that God actually asked Elijah to anoint Hazael as king. See, not only is God tolerating what is happening here, what is about to happen, He's basically enabling it to happen. Some today even go so far as saying that God is actually the originator of Hazael's evil, that he's the one who actually starts it. 
because he told Elijah to ordain him as king. You can see the dilemma. What do we do? How can we make these claims about God and square them with what we read? Well, the way you answer this is actually called a theodicy, coming from the Greek words theos and decay, meaning God and justice. It is a word that describes an argument for God's existence in the face of evil in the world. Yes, it is that big a problem that it has its own word. And you can see the problem. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, if He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, how could evil possibly exist? You've given God every possible tool to be able to deal with it. Why is it still here? People say, if, if you, because of the, the undeniable fact that evil exists, you can't have all three of those. You can only have, you've got to choose two. Some suggest that God has uh, given all people free will and he has absolutely no say in what people decide to do. And so he permitted Hazael to act by giving him free choice and then he just let him go. And there's nothing he could do to possibly change Hazael's decisions. The only problem with that, especially in this passage, is that knowing that God asked Elijah to anoint him to be king doesn't help that at all. Why would God tell his prophet to anoint him if he knew he was going to be an evil king? All we've done by saying this is that God is all-knowing, but now we're just a little bit unsure about whether he is all-powerful or whether he is all-good. As Canadian theologian Don Carson says, to abandon belief in the omnipotence of God may solve the problem of evil, but the cost is enormous. The resulting God is incapable of helping us. No, the, the answer of Scripture is not that God gave us free will and therefore uh, he, he, can't, he can't do anything about that. The answer of Scripture is that not a single one of the worst or the most evil of kings right throughout human history Whoever they are, Shalmaneser III, Genghis Khan, Montezuma, Queen Mary, Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, all of them, you name it, not a single one has acted as some kind of rogue escapee out of God's big plan. They didn't find the, the escape hatch in God's roadmap and somehow oh, managed to sneak out of God's will. God is omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful and nothing happens outside His will. Nothing. Yet now we're in a dilemma, aren't we? If God is all-powerful, how can He be all-good if evil is part of that plan? Carson is helpful here again. God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, He stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. You know what symmetry is? It means two things are 
opposite and exactly the same. To be asymmetrical, they're opposite, but not exactly the same. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of His sovereignty. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to Him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of His sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to Him and only derivatively to secondary agents. By secondary agents, He means other beings existing, humans, angels, demons, you name it, other things. If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, my initial response, though there is more to be said, is that according to the Bible, there is, this is the only God there is. There is no other. There is more to be said, of course. I'll also say more, though if you want to know what Carson wants to say, you'll have to go and read his book. You see, this, this problem is grounded in Scripture. Of course, we, we ought to try and make sense of it as much as we can. But we do so seeking to make sense of what the Bible has to say about it. Not trying to make the Bible say what our instincts say is right. And this is one of the reasons why as Christians, we sometimes use the language of God permitting or allowing evil to happen. When we say that, when we use those words, we don't mean uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that uh, a secondary agent which is evil or wants to do evil, whether that's an evil king or whether that's a demon or something in nature, you know, wants to do something and they have to go and ask God for permission to do it. And so then God thinks about it and says, uh, yeah, okay, I'll allow it. No, that's not what we mean when we say God permits or allows evil. The reason we use that kind of language is because we're trying to express that tension in Scripture that makes clear that God is all-powerful, yet there is no evil in Him, none whatsoever. As Carson said, the evil that is done is attributed to the secondary agents and never to Him. A classic, very clear example of this in Scripture, which is, which is very obviously spelled out, is in Genesis 50, verse 20. When Joseph says this to his brothers after they have sold him to a slave trader, and then many years later when he has risen to become the second in charge over all Egypt, he reveals himself to his brothers and he says, As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The evil intent of his brothers was used by God's good intent to bring about good. In this case, it was the saving of many lives in the midst of the famine. And so as we zoom out from our passage, this is what we see. Hazael's evil has not escaped God's power and has not escaped his plan. He still achieves his good purposes through it. 
Second Kings 13.3 later on says this, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Do you see what's happened? In God's divine sovereignty and in his divine wisdom, one of the things he has permitted in his will is the rise of Hazael to be an agent of his righteous judgment on Israel's sin and wickedness. It is not unlike him saying that the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete, which he does in Genesis 15, 16. Scripture shows us time and again that God is working out His plans through all the events of the world, even when we can't see or understand what He's doing or why He's doing it. And He would later bring judgment on Hazael and Syria for their sin and wickedness, as we see in Amos 1, 3-4. This is the work of an infinitely wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God. The Bible teaches us that God's sovereignty doesn't diminish our own responsibility for our choices. They are ours, and we will own the consequences of them. But nor does it, our responsibility diminish His sovereignty in any way. God is at work in the world to bring about justice, to bring about his righteous divine will even through great tragedy and evil. And this means that we who believe in him, despite the evil in the world, despite the evil kings and rulers and regimes that come and go, the evil that even lurks inside of us, our own grasping from the the throne, despite all of that, we can be confident that our good God will bring about His good purposes for His people. You can have confidence in that. You can depend on that. And that even includes the rise of a man to power who is bent on grasping for more. The final verses of our passage show us how Elisha's prophecy about Ben-Hadad and Hazael plays out. Hazael delivers the message But then, of course, he murders the king by suffocating him and taking the throne for himself. We're not told how or why this is even possible, that a a son of a nobody could take the throne. This is simply stated as fact. And Hazael's rise to the throne is complete, and his campaigns of evil against the nation of Israel begin. For the original hearers and the readers of this book, the Israelites in in exile in Babylon, in Assyria, they would have been wondering. They would have been trying to process everything that happened to get them to that point. How could God, how could the infinite one who is the king of kings, let his people be so badly defeated like this? And it's not just Hazael who ransacked their nation. It was others as well. As a matter of fact, Hazael's war against them wasn't even the worst. 
About a hundred years after Hazael, the king of Assyria would invade and conquer Samaria and send them all into exile. You can imagine their thought process in the face of such terrible defeat. I, th- I thought we worshipped the only God. I thought the Lord was strong and mighty. I thought He was supposed to be God over all the nations, not just ours. Why is it that we now find ourselves having been totally defeated by Assyria and Babylon? Such questions would have been on the minds of these exiled Israelites, and for good reason. As they pondered their nation's history and considered what went wrong, even in these smaller battles, they needed to know why. And this is the answer they receive. God has not left you. He has not lost His authority. He is still on His throne. And He is still good, even in the face of evil. Evil has not won. And that is a truth that is still true for us today. Wherever we find ourselves, wherever we have come from, and wherever we might be in future, that truth will always be true. God is still on His throne. No matter who is currently in charge of our city, or your job, or our territory, or our nation, or our continent, or our world, no matter who is sitting on any of those thrones, God is still on His throne, and no matter how bad things get in the world, there is nothing that is outside of His domain. Believe it or not, if there was a nuclear apocalypse, God is still on His throne. He still would be. How does that land for you? Do you find that the atrocities of this world are too great? And so you think, I need to find a way that that compromises either God's knowledge or His power or His goodness because it just it just does not make sense. Or is it too convenient to say that God is all-powerful but evil is not His fault and you kind of think, uh, I don't like that. Friends, this is the God that we meet in Scripture. And the answer that He gives us to the problem of evil But it's still an incomplete one, isn't it? We're not quite done. Sure, we might be able to trust that God is great, that He's in control, that He's still on the throne, that He hasn't forgotten us. But what comfort does that give us when it feels like that isn't true? When it feels like evil has won, when it feels like God has lost, when our soldiers die in battle, when dictators hold positions of power? Of course, it was a question that would linger continue to linger for the Israelites when reading this, still in exile. Maybe it'll be one that we will ask ourselves at some point in our lives. 
the Israelites, even though they were able to return to their land years later, perhaps thinking to themselves, well, yeah, God is proving himself now. We get to come to our land. We get to rebuild the temple. And yet eventually, not long after that, they lose it again. And the Israelites scatter throughout Europe and throughout Asia Minor, and they come to be known as the Jews, a people with an ethnic identity, but without the land that God has promised. And the promise to them that they would be a nation that would bless the nations, that they would have a king on David's throne who would reign forever. Those promises remain unfulfilled. He might be all-knowing, he might be all-powerful, but how can we be sure that he is good? Well, that is where Jesus comes in. He would be the one who would bring about all of these promises for God's people. And he would reveal how God's greatness and his goodness come together. And that brings me to my final point. The cross proves God's throne. The cross proves God's throne. Right throughout Scripture, God shows that He is not only King of all kings, but that He is also King over all evil. We see that in our passage this morning in the fact that Hazael's rise didn't catch God by surprise, nor was it outside of His perfect will. But we also see that His will is good. And the greatest example of God's greatness and goodness coming together over evil is in the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is seen most clearly, I think, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. Peter tells this to the crowds. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus of Nazareth who came to earth, who was attested to the people, meaning that he proved who he was, proved that he was the Son of God. He backed up his claims by performing mighty works and wonders and signs, things that those people saw and heard with their own eyes and ears or heard from other people. It is this Jesus, it is him, that one, that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, men who had evil intent, men who acted wickedly, you nailed him to the cross, Peter says. And yet, that was done according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not even the most evil act in all of human history escaped the will of God. You see, oftentimes we ask this question, or perhaps you were asked this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? 
And yet, the problem with that question is that there has only ever been, in the whole history of humanity, one good person. And by good, I I don't mean relatively good. All, All people can be relatively good. I'm talking about good meaning perfectly righteous. One that we can truly only call good. So if it is an evil thing to commit evil against an evil person, how much more evil is it to commit evil against a good person? Jesus was the only person to ever walk the earth completely free of any wrongdoing, of any sin, of any evil. And yet he was crucified for crimes that he never committed, for sin that he never savored, for evil that he never embodied. He wasn't the king who grasped for his life. He wasn't the king who was bloodthirsty for power. No, he was the king who laid down his life. He was the king who laid down his power when crowds of men came to take his life. Friends, if you're ever wondering whether God has lost control of evil, look to the cross. On the cross, Jesus showed that God is still on his throne. On the cross, Jesus showed, God showed that he is still carrying out his plans and that they are good. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has defeated the rulers and the authorities. This passage is likely talking about demonic rulers and authorities. But he's defeated them and put them to shame by triumphing over them in Jesus on the cross. And he's done so for a reason. In Jesus, God's promise to Israel would be fulfilled. In Jesus, he would show how God is creating a people for himself that is made up of people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. And they would, they would be a people who were once dead in their sins, but have been made alive in Christ. Because on the cross, he nailed our debt of sin that stood against it. It is through turning from that sin and trusting in Jesus for salvation that we are made right before God and brought to spiritual life in Him. Christ is victorious over evil. And we can depend on Him. We can trust that even in the midst of great evil in our world and even the evil in our own hearts, He has triumphed over them. So you see, the question for us is not 
Why do bad things happen to good people? But why do good things happen to bad people? Each of us is deserving of God's judgment for grasping for his throne, for wanting to be our own kings and queens, and yet God in Jesus achieves good for us that we do not deserve. If you're here this morning and if you have not yet recognized your own grasping to be king or queen of your own life, let me urge you to do so today. Because one day, one day, God will complete. He will finish the victory that he began with, with Christ on the cross. One day that work will be done. You see, God doesn't just achieve good from evil in the interim. When when I say he achieves good from our evil, that's not just something that is for the here and the now. Yes, he will, will bring about tangible goods in our lives, things that we can point to and say and recognize in our own lifetimes and say, see how God has been gracious in bringing about the good from my evil in my life. But he will also complete that work, finally, both in us and in the world, when he will do away with all evil at the end of this age. As Revelation 21 makes clear, the time is coming when God will complete His good purposes by bringing about final righteous judgment on the wicked. He will bring evil to an end. And by then, all people will have run out of time to turn and trust in Jesus. Friends, how will the sin and evil in your own heart be dealt with by God? Will the judgment for your sin be atoned for in Christ on the cross? Or will you one day pay for it yourself? God will finally bring about ultimate good from our evil. The question is, will you praise Him or will you hate Him for it? I know this is a difficult thing for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around. (laughs) I know it's hard to wrestle with in the midst of and knowing about great evil in our world. There is a reason why theodicy exists. (laughs) The word exists and it has for centuries. We are, after all, finite beings who desire our own crowns. Whereas God is an infinite being who rightly owns His crown. But I hope that as we've reflected on this passage this morning, you can see that Scripture's witness is true. 
that God is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-good. I pray that we would not only know that, that that would not just be something that we can cognitively accept, but that we would entrust our lives and have real hope, have real assurance in Him, knowing that He is King over all evil. And that through it, He will continue to and will finally bring about good from it. Let's pray. Father, we confess that these are challenging things for us to grasp. Especially when some of the things that we see truly are great and devastating. Lord, help us to trust in the surety of your word and the truth, the fact that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. God, may the result be in our lives not a fear or doubt of you, but a deepening trust and love for you. Father, help us to look to the cross to see how Christ has triumphed over all. May we take great comfort in that and go forth in the assurance that we see your goodness to us in what he has done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.